Are team culture and front office vital to a team's success? Can the Cardinals bounce back against the 49ers? And all of our Week 9 NFL game picks. Welcome to Saturday Morning Inspection. Welcome to Saturday Morning Inspection. We are not the show that has the same talking heads that you see in big sports media. We are a former college football player and a small business operator who spent way too much time watching and talking about football. We don't have the fancy sets and the big corporate backing. We have to rely on our big brains and the fact that we are ridiculously good looking. That's right, Nick. And because we're the exact opposite of big sports media, we need your support. So if you can like, comment, subscribe on our videos and podcasts, uh, wherever you may get them, whether it's YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify, we would greatly appreciate it. Nonetheless, we have an excellent show today, so let's get on into it. Nick, can you warm us up with some trivia? Absolutely. I got a good question for you, Mize. Let me know whenever you're ready. I am ready. All right, for our first-time listeners, this is how it goes. I'm going to ask Mize a question. He has five seconds to answer. If he doesn't give it, doesn't give the correct answer, I'll give him three seconds uh, with a hint. If he doesn't get it then, then he loses. All right, Mize, here we go. What three-word saying was this team's mantra that carried them to a Super Bowl victory after the 2014 season? Five, four. Oh, so am I – Real quick, am I naming the mantra or the team? Mantra, the three-word mantra. Four. Give me three, a hint. Two, one. This team won the Super Bowl on a dramatic last-second defensive play at the goal line. Three, two, one. All right, you're gonna hate yourself for this one, Mice. This three-word mantra is "Do your job." Patriots. And that was the story of the Patriots. The play was obviously Malcolm Butler intercepting Russell Wilson at the one-yard line. And I think, as always, that's a great segue. We do a pretty good job with our segues into our deep dive topic of the week. Uh, Mize, why don't you let everybody know a little bit about what we're going to be talking about uh, starting off the show. So today, our deep dive topic of the week is going to be what is the importance of team culture and front office in the general success of a team. Does the, as the Patriots say, do your job, come to work, this is a job, Not we're not having fun, we're here to win. Does the, the mindset or mantra of a team come into play in their success? Does the front office matter? As it, Does it have any effect on a team? And we're going to dive into this today and uh, give you our thoughts on the matter. Uh, do you want to get us started, Nick? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, I think we'll get everything going with a few stories back to my, uh, my old playing days, a little background into what I saw in a culture. And just, just for our listeners, just a little awareness. I, uh, the four years I played in college, we had one winning season. We weren't very good. I'd say we were a little below average as a football team in D1AA football. So this was by no means. We were not a dynasty. We were not a dumpster fire. We were kind of somewhere in between, you know, right on the mediocre scale. And one of the things I remember distinctly about our team culture throughout that time period was just every year we just seemed to have to always pivot to a different 
uh, theme, to a different motto, to a different goal. You know, it was one year we always seemed to be really focused on, you know, acting like we uh, needed to be there, acting like we've been there before. You know, our mantra my freshman year was literally act as if. It, it just was a really weird mantra. It didn't make any sense. It was kind of confusing. Uh, one year we had an even better one. It was, uh, I'm kidding you not here. It was we around. Grammatical issues aside with the phrase we around. Our, our mantra was supposed to be, hey, we're here. We deserve to be here. We deserve to compete. So the idea wasn't really that bad. But if your team culture and team motto is based on the fact that you're showing up to the game, you know, you're around, that's probably not a good indicator of long-term success. Couldn't you like switch it to like we're around or? I, that's what I offered up very, very early on when I heard it. Cause you know, I, I was thinking that a lot of teams when they played us, they would just assume we didn't pay attention in class and we were a bunch of idiots cause we didn't know oh, correct English. I got it. It was a mental game. You tell them the mantra, they get confused and maybe think less of you, so you sneak attack them when they're less least expecting it. I like it. Yeah, well, if, if that was the plan, it, it, uh, it didn't work out too well that year. I think we had a losing season, and we certainly didn't make the playoffs in, in D1 AA. But, yeah, I, I think for me, looking back on my days with, with culture, one of, the, one of the interesting things was how much we focused in school uh, about what we called the little things, right? It was, uh, it was doing these funky drills and, and always having the, you know, doing the right commands. So like to give you an example, a drill we used to do in summer, summer workouts, which is just stunk. Uh, you would just get in the line and a bunch of columns of different players. So you'd have a group of five, another group of five, another group of five and so on. And you'd sprint five yards and you'd chop your feet. And when the coach blew the whistle, you clapped your hands and then you had to say whatever word it was at that line. Then you ran to the next one and you chop your feet again and the coach would blow a whistle. Then you'd have to say whatever that word was. So the first line may be win, the second line may be team. And if you screwed it up, you've said the wrong word or whatever. If you didn't say it fast enough, your group had to start over. So it really stunk. But the thing I never understood was what value did that provide? I mean, did, did anyone on the roster honestly think that our goal was to not win games or that we weren't actually a football team? Did that reassure our guys that we were a, a team like this was actually a football team? You know, may, maybe with the, the real round slogan, maybe maybe they were concerned that we didn't have the intellectual giants to, to comprehend being on a team. But uh, I don't know. It's just, it's just things like that. When you hear about culture and environment that, that goes from the top of the organization down and how important it is to, to have the right people, you know, leading the organization and, and setting the right tone and structure, you know, so that way you, you've got guys and players understand exactly the direction. You don't have people just, you know, well, why are we, you know, wondering why you're doing certain things? And, and, you know, if, if, if you don't have that, there's a lot of gimmicks. And I felt in college, we had a lot of gimmicks. We had the fancy slogans or the silly slogans, I should say, you know, we had those, those funky drills and the results weren't that great on the field. I have a question for you then real yeah, quick. So it was your, our senior year that a new coach came into town, correct? Yep. Correct. Did he have a different mentality than your previous coaches? Because, and this could just be a personnel thing but after we left school they seemed to do relatively well for a couple of years uh i didn't know if the coach had anything to do with that was that luck or they had a few deep playoff runs there yeah so there are a couple of factors you know i you know for everyone's awareness i was a backup in college so i like to joke i was so bad that not only did i not play 
that I weighed down practice so much that after I left, the team got so much better and started going to the playoffs. But uh, <laughs> that joke aside, uh, so definitely, so the new head coach that came in, his name is Mike Houston. He's now at Eastern Carolina. I think he's he's had a very successful They're career as a head as well. Yeah, he's yeah he's been a very successful head coach. He won a national championship. Uh, D1AA with James Madison a few years ago. So he obviously has a great career. He had a different mindset, um, you know, not so much on the sloganing and, and, and things like that uh, that we had in the previous regime, but it, it there still was a little bit because you still had some holdover and bleed over. Uh, again, organizational structure. We still had, you know, the same athletic department, the same strength department, the same, you know, kind of structure, obviously the same school and the same administration. So you're never really going to be able to get completely away from that because that's so baked into the environment. But there definitely was uh, a different focus and different uh, attitude shift. To kind of give you an example, um, instead of doing maybe silly conditioning drills or something like that, uh, we would do a lot more no huddle drills and stuff like that in practice. So actually getting football reps was our conditioning as opposed to just running kind of stupid sprints. So, yeah, to answer your question, there was a change. I don't know if that was the reason for our success, but um, – there definitely was a big change with the new with the new coach, uh, like you said, that showed up our senior year. I would be remiss if I did not touch on this. Uh, I would say it was successful. I think that goes to show a little bit about how front office or coaching or culture of the team can help. Uh, but the following year after we left, uh, my wife does watch the show and listen, so I have to mention this. Uh, the Citadel did travel down to the big D1 school of University of South Carolina and pulled off one of the larger upsets in Citadel history. I I, I do remember that. So uh, Citadel did beat South Carolina and the discipline, integrity, and uh, stick-to-itiveness of the team really paid off that year. Yeah, I mean, it, like you said, it was a big upset and a, and a big, big game and big moment for the program. Um you know, I, I think there is a little bit to be said of while the culture starts at the top and works its way down, you know, getting the right kind of change agent, so to speak, kind of as a middle manager, which is essentially what a coach is. And, you know, we don't really think about that, whether it's college or pro. You know, we think of the coach as the guy who's in charge running the show. He's not. There's usually a GM and there's obviously the owner and then the ownership groups. Uh, in the ownership leadership. So if there may be multiple, uh, like a CEO, COO of that football team or director of football operations or something like that. So a, a coach is kind of just like the middleman, you know, he's kind of like a middle manager. And so that creates kind of a, a challenging environment for the coach to set the culture. But if you get the right guy in, he can be kind of a change, change agent, both vertically up the organization and uh, uh, vertically up and vertically down, down to the players. And uh, I think uh, Houston, Coach Houston, he did a pretty good job of that for his tenure uh, when he was at uh, at the Citadel. And I think our first example of a pro team that does that ties into our trivia. You know, our seamless transitions are nothing but the best. But uh, a great team, the New England Patriots, specifically the Brady years, and even now, uh, I'll give you my little, I know you've prepared some stuff, but this is my two cents on the Patriots because I think there's interesting, there's two models a team can have, or three models, excuse me. You can have a coach, a GM, and an owner. Some teams, like the Cowboys, have a coach, and then the owner is the GM. And then teams like the Patriots have an owner, and the coach is the GM. 
as in Bill Belichick's position. It, it might not be classified like that on paper, but he is the GM, if we're being honest. Uh, and I think when it works, and fortunately for the Cowboys and the Patriots, they have successful models of these examples. When it works, I think it can be really good, uh, like a Patriots organization, when somebody who is the coach has personnel input, has uh, mantra input, has the input into the team that he can get the players and get the draft for the culture of the team that he's looking, get the pieces, the players who he wants. He typically goes after smart players. He typically goes after players who can play more than one spot on the field. Uh, he lo- big special teams guy. Uh, I think that ability to form that culture of everybody, like you said, do your job, do things like this. Everyone has a job, and if you do your job and he does his job, we're going to be successful. I think the Patriots' ability to do those kind of things is what has brought them success. Well, I, I'd even take it a step further. I, you know, When I juxtapose it, another big word for you out there, when I compare it to uh, what happened to me at school and, and the organization and the things like that, you know, compare do your job with some of our slogans. And what I always liked about do your job is that it's actionable right? You physically know to follow the team motto, to follow the sort of mantra, the, the, the goal set from the top of the organization down. Everyone knows what do your job means is do what you're told, do what you need to do to win that play, the game, the, the situation from the water boy to Tom Brady, you know, do your job, not somebody else's job. You know, don't do less than your job. Don't do more than your job. Do what your job entails. And that's very actionable. And I think that's very key when you look at an organization like the Patriots, because what is Belichick always revered in terms of his game preparation situations, understanding what players need to do and how they need to do it in any one of a thousand situations that can happen over the course of a game and over the course of a season. So having that concept of do your job and having the coaching and the, the game planning that goes that pairs with that, I think has created a lot of success in New England. And I, and I, and I really love the fact that, like I said, it's actionable. There's not one player who's sitting there wondering, what does do your job mean? How do I apply that do your job today? No, it's okay. I do what I'm told. You know, I go in a film room and, and, you know, one of the coaches says, Hey, you know, this is the coverage you need to play, or this is the way you need to block this. Okay. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to execute just like that. And when Belichick goes over all the thousand situations and how they need to react, it's okay, I just do that. I just react to the situation the way I was coached. I don't have to worry about what the guy to the left of me is. I don't have to worry about the guy to the right of me is. And that kind of just beating into their head and just going about it day in and day out and having the discipline to stick to that, I think is one of the big reasons that the Patriots have had a lot of success over, uh, over the last few decades. And that kind of reminds me of uh, another, you know, do your job. It reminds me, this is kind of a funnier, jokier thing, but in the same vein, it is true. When I was going through uh, the police academy a while back, uh, there was a guy, a teacher, who was talking to us. And there's this kid who would talk too much, think that he knew it all, try to give examples of stuff. And he didn't know anything, but we were all in school to learn. But what this teacher said is, and I'll get you to act it out for me, Nick. He said, take your arms and put them out straight in front of you. Just straight like this. He said, that's your lane, stay in it. So, you know, do your job, stay in your lane, don't focus on 
what Tom Brady has to do if you're Wes Welker or Julian Edelman. You focus on your routes. You don't need to know what Tom has to know. You need to know what your job is. You focus on your stuff. And if you can do your thing that to the best of your ability, we're going to have success. Yeah, and, and, and like you said, I think the, the important thing, while, while that motto is good, the fact that he sticks to it and the discipline, and like you said, they draft smart guys who are, who are able to apply those different concepts you know, in that team, I think is all part of it. You know, another example of good culture, I know I know it's near and dear to you, is what the Ravens have set up uh, over the past, uh, really last, oh my gosh, since Ozzie Newsom became GM in the 90s. I know, Absolutely. I know, I know you've got a lot of thoughts on that. I'll, I'll let you go ahead and, and dig into that a little bit. So on the screen now, I have uh, the quartet of Ravens front office and culture. You have Joe Ortiz, uh, director of player personnel, you have Ozzie Newsom, who is now an advisor, former long-term GM for the Ravens. You have Eric DaCosta, who is now current GM of the Ravens, and John Harbaugh, coach of the Ravens. I think this the only person is uh, Steve Biscotti, who's the owner. He is not uh, pictured here. And I think uh, this team of guys is why Baltimore has had continued success, consistent playoff team. Uh, You never hear too many issues or crazy things come out of the locker room. Uh, You never hear too much about uh, team problems. They don't really have guys that have off-the-field issues too terribly. I mean, it does happen from time to time because that's just the nature of the beast, but uh, they're they're quick to move on from those people. Perfect example, because I have it pulled up already. Um, Two guys who I think of are, and that's I think this is one thing that is in Baltimore's, makes them successful. Uh, This past year, two years ago, Earl Thomas was uh, signed to Baltimore. Great player, great player in Seattle, uh, revered as one of the best safeties in the NFL at the time. But all of a sudden, he started having conflicts. Uh, he got in a fight with one of the other safeties, Chuck Clark, on the team now, who's the starting safety. Uh, he had weird off-the-field issues. We don't really have to go into something about his brother and him doing some things that were undesirable. Uh, and he just started to be a distraction in the locker room. Baltimore had paid this guy a lot of money to come play safety. What did they do? Cut him out. He's gone. You know, we're not going to have distractions. We're not going to break apart the team's culture because of one player. Another example, I don't know why it also happens to be a safety, Bernard Pollard, uh, the Patriot killer. uh, He really was on uh, Baltimore for their Super Bowl run. He did a lot of great things in Baltimore. Uh, He was a very solid player, hard, hard hitting Cam Chancellor, like strong safety. But near the end of his career, he was bit of a locker room cancer. He created rifts in the team, and they didn't care how successful he was or how much they had to pay him. They cut him. They moved on from him. And I think that's another sign of a good team, and that's one of the hallmarks of Baltimore, is they care about their culture, and they don't care who you are. If you were Ray Lewis and you started to become a problem, they will move on from you to keep the culture of the team together. But speaking of Ray Lewis, that brings me up to the other point. 
the biggest thing about Baltimore, I believe, and their mantra, you say the Patriots' mantra was do your job. Baltimore's mantra is play like a Raven. They have the embodiment of the Raven, tough defense, ground and pound offense, really just a lot of grit, next man up type thing. It doesn't matter who we are. We always got a chance in the game. And these three guys on the screen right now were who started Baltimore's culture. You have Ray Lewis, you have Ed Reed, and you have Terrell Suggs. These are the guys who embodied that Baltimore defense that was so dominant and is always a force to be reckoned with. They would embody the culture of the team, and they would kind of pass it on to anyone who came in. They would say, hey, you know, you're messing up. We do it like this. You can't act like this. Uh, When Bernard Pollard was acting up, I believe Ray Lewis and Ed Reed went to the coaches like, hey, I like the guy, but he's causing a problem. He needs to go. And Harbaugh said, okay, he's going to go. These guys were the leaders of the team. They were leaders on the teams when they were in college. And drafting good players with strong leadership abilities has been a great, great ability of Baltimore. And I think that's why they've been so successful. Yeah, and, and I think there's a good duality there between what New England and Baltimore have been, right? You have New England where it all comes to Belichick. Like you said, he's the coach, but he's also the GM and de facto is in that role. And he has all the control over the organization. It all flows from Bill. Bill sets the tone. Bill sets the goals. Bill sets, you know, the, the mantras, the themes, the motifs, the culture, right? There, it's sort of what, you know, there's one guy and then there's Belichick and then there's everybody else right? Baltimore is a little different. You know, Baltimore is all about delegation of authority. You got Biscotti, the owner who let Newsom run the general manager with DaCosta. DaCosta now is the GM. And they handled a lot of that scouting, that player personnel, that drafting, the free agent moves, but they delegated the actual coaching and player management to Harbaugh. And Harbaugh in turn delegated the leadership of the players and the day-to-day to the leaders on that team, the Ray Lewis's and Ed Reed's of the world and the Terrell Suggs of the world that you brought up. And it's just two very different ways of doing it, but it's a, but both are very, very successful. And it tells you there's no necessarily right or wrong way to do it. You just have to have the discipline, the forthright, forthrightness to stick with it if it's a good plan. And I think that's one of the reasons why Baltimore has been really successful. You know, they understood, you know, once they, you know, Biscotti knew some of them to cost and, you know, because this was before Harbaugh, right? They won a Super Bowl with Billick in the 2000 when Brian Billick was a head coach. They understood that their strategy was going to be, we're going to draft players that we want to be leaders. You know, we're going to delegate the coaching to the coach and we're going to focus the front office on the front office and we're going to focus the players are going to control the players. And that's what we're going to stick with for better or for worse. That's what we're going to roll with. And we're going to focus on that from the top of the organization down. So what does that mean? It means you have scouts and GMs who are really bought into doing a great job scouting and finding diamonds in the rough and having great draft picks and making the right moves because they know that's their lane. That's what they're in charge of. And they're really committed to it. You have coaches that are obviously dedicated to coaching and making sure they're focused on developing and game planning and not worrying about the GM and the scouting, right? Because that's a different delegation of authority. And then you get the leaders on the team and what they can focus on leading the team. And and so there's a lot of parallels there, right? Because what I just said sounds eerily similar to do your job. But instead of it being, you know, hey, I'm Tom Brady. I do Tom Brady things. That's what I'm focused on. The Baltimore is almost, uh, you know, like set up uh, compartments. Car- um, uh, they've set up like little departments in their team. Say, hey, this, this segment is responsible for that. 
you know, GM scouting is responsible for that. You have coaching is responsible for this. You have players that are responsible for this. And, and like you said, it's been really, really, really successful. Um, you know, I, I wonder if, uh, if, if you think that, you know, maybe if, there, if there's some time in your fandom, if you felt that Baltimore should have done things different, or have you really felt that they've done a, a pretty good job organizationally uh, since as long as you've been watching them? Um, well, this shows why I'm not an NFL GM. Uh, one thing that they do do, and that's why they, John Harbaugh never questions. And there's been two trains of thought, okay? Uh, in the draft process, they did best player available regardless of need. And that was the Newsom area. And that's when we had such a great defense because there was a lot of underrated defenders who would slip through because uh, I don't know why people value offensive players a little bit more than defensive players. Uh, we wouldn't necessarily draft a wide receiver, but we'd get another linebacker. We'd get another edge rusher. We'd get another offensive lineman. And we would always pick up these players no matter what our need was. And I would always be like, oh, we need receivers. We don't have any receivers. And they would keep getting defenders. They would keep getting offensive linemen. And we just developed a team that was absent of receivers. And we would pick up serviceable receivers and free agency, and it's a model that worked. It was good. It may not have been what I thought they should have done, but they had a plan. They would get Anquan Boldens. They would get Michael Crabtrees. They would get Steve Smith, Mike Wallace's, anybody they could to help the team going forward. They've gotten John Brown, Sammy Watkins, all kinds of guys. Well, we've moved into the DaCosta era, and it's similar. It's best player available but they do factor in need a little bit. We have been drafting more receivers in the first round, but we've also drafted edge rushers. We also saw them jump up for a quarterback when we didn't necessarily need one because Lamar Jackson at 32, we saw as an extreme value pick. We could not let him get out of the first round there. We thought people were crazy for letting him go. They jump up and grab him. So I think it just goes to show there are a lot of different ways to do things. And if you ask somebody like me, I'm probably going to make the wrong decision because I haven't been doing it for as long as they have. But uh, when a team has continued success, there are ups, there are downs. And if you try to focus on the downs too much, you're going to burn yourself because you say, oh, maybe we should move on from this guy. Maybe Harbaugh had a bad year. Maybe he should be gone. Maybe we should get a different coach. They're running the ball too much. We don't throw it anymore. Why are we running the ball so much? Well, there's a reason we're running the ball so much because we're good at it and maybe we don't have the tools to pass. And then you see, okay, now next year we've worked on our passing game. We're getting there in the passing department. So when you have a good team, you have continued success. You have to trust the model and trust the process. Yeah, I agree. It's, I think one of the big themes is continuity and consistency. You know, continuity, consistency, discipline, they're all kind of the same thing. But when it comes to the organization, how it's structured, I think that's downright critical i think an example of the opposite of that is 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 the new york giants uh, head up by owner uh uh, uh mara mara is their owner right now and they've got dave gettleman's the gm and you know the giants have been one of the worst performing franchises in the nfl over the last decade and it seems every two years the giants have a massive pivot right they had coughlin for a while and had some success you know hard-nosed discipline run the ball defense then they switched they brought in pat Shermer. Oh, they're going to be high-flying offense. He was offensive coordinator. He was going to develop Daniel Jones, and they're going to be high-flying, aggressive offense. Well, that didn't work. Okay, they're going to pivot now to Joe Judge, special teams, you know, complicated defense, you know, Patriot guy doing 
more of the do your job kind of mentality. And it's not that any of those coaches, specifically Sherman or Judge, are, are bad coaches or don't know football or, or aren't good at uh, evaluating the talent and game plan they have, is that it's such a pivot all the time. And it takes so much energy to get all your players to go from this direction. They've been doing this for one or two or three years from the previous coach to flip their mentality so much and then to keep up with everybody else that isn't having to flip that. And that waste to transition all the time, that mindset, I think that's why so many franchise struggle. And I think that's why the Giants really struggle. You know, one of the reasons why that Green Bay is so good every year, as an example, you know, you look at other teams that are really good all the time, but it's not just Aaron Rodgers. It's the fact that the, their team, their identity is always kind of the same. You know, you always kind of know who Green Bay is. You always kind of know how they're going to play, what their themes are going to be, what they're going to look like, what's their style, you know, you know, kind of, they're kind of calm, cool, relaxed, you know, no, no big deal. If we start slow, no problem. You know, we're going to, we're going to fight back and we're going to catch our groove, you know, and just having that mentality and that, that just feel in the locker room and and, in the environment and the team goes a long way, you know, compare contrast that to the giants who, you know, you just never know. Every It feels like a shift every year, their mentality. You know, I think uh, Gettleman, their GM, you know, two years ago, he was all about being big, explosive offense. You know, let's uh, let's get Barkley and Daniel Jones. And get, let's get them going. And then last year he says, well, we're, we're going to draft all the big uglies. We're going to draft and bring an offensive lineman. They get Andrew Thomas uh, left tackle. Um, and then this year they're focused more on, oh, we want to be big and explosive. They signed Kenny Galladay. They drafted Tony out of Florida, the wide receiver. And so it's just all these pivots all the time. It, it's just hard for players and coaches to constantly have to react and, and adjust how they play and how they handle their day-to-day. You know, in the, in the business world, in the, the operational world, they call that waste because you're spending time doing things that aren't related to you being a better football player because you've got to pivot from one thing to the other. And it creates all kinds of issues, and we're seeing it with how the Giants have struggled. And it's like you said earlier, uh, off off the air, the Giants really have a lack of identity. They don't know who they are. Uh, like you said, they went one way this year with the draft. They went another way this year with the draft. They go another way this year with the draft. And like you said, the push pull, push pull, uh, the waste of resources. Like if you want to go this way, and say you draft uh, Barclays and Daniel Joneses and then you decide to go the other way and do all the big uglies, you're, you're counterproductive on how you're going to go, and you're not ever really going to, like you said, need continuity, go forward. Uh, another quick example of someone who does do that, and it has gotten them some ex- success, is you always think of the Oakland now Las Vegas Raiders. Uh, when Mark Davis was, uh, dad was around, Al Davis was there, all the, the one identity, I'll tell you, when the Raiders drafted a receiver, what did they look for? Speed, fast. At the fastest guy. You got Darius Hayward Bay. Unfortunately, this one didn't pay off. They have Henry Ruggs, who's no longer with the team. Uh, but they always wanted the guy who had the best 40 time. That was their indicator, and they stuck to it. It wasn't always the greatest, but they did it, and they were consistent about it. Yeah, and, and, and to your point with the Raiders, and people can say, well, you know, Darius Hayward Bay didn't work out. Henry Ruggs obviously isn't going to work out. Oh, they, they, those bad strategy didn't work. People forget the Raiders are first in the AFC West right now. 
right? Yeah. They fought through the John Gruden issues, right? The Raiders have been to a Super Bowl in the last 20 years. They've, they've been to playoff games. They've won, they've won, a, you know, they've won division titles. They've been competitive. They've had some bad years, but they've had a lot of good years too. And the reason is they're consistent, right? So if you miss on the draft, you know, hey, maybe you can't be a championship team because you didn't get the guys. Darius Hayward Bay was a bust, for example. But because you have continuity and consistency in your organization, you still have a certain amount of success. I think that's one of the reasons my, my team, Dallas, has a certain amount of success, uh, you know, over the last 15 years or so, even though they haven't won Super Bowls or, or, or gone to any for that matter, is because Jerry Jones and that organization is usually very, very consistent. Ever since they got Jason Garrett, who certainly had his issues at a head coach, they had a very similar theme and consistent theme. And it worked out really well. And, and they were able to, you know, while they were, weren't winning championships, they were consistently in the hunt. And I think that's what having consistently does. It keeps you in the hunt. And it's, it's like when I think of Dallas, I think of, strong offensive line play since like the early 2010s they've always had a top tier offensive line if they could help it always had some of the best offensive linemen you see a tier list of o-linemen dallas has at least one guy from center guard tackle that's in the top five always 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 they've always focused on having strong running game whether it's zeke and pollard whether it was uh demarco murray uh Emmett Smith, they've always had strong running backs. Uh, recently, uh, they've always had pretty gunslinger-esque quarterbacks and Romo and Staubach and Aikman and now Dak. Uh, and they've had pretty good tight ends. That's another thing I think about Dallas is good possession tight ends uh, with Jason Witten and now uh, Schultz. That, Like you said, they're always consistent in how they draft and how they do things and it keeps them consistently in the playoffs. Yeah, and, and I want to bring up an example. I, I talked to you a little bit off air about, you know, a, a team that's that's kind of in the news a little bit now, and that's Miami. Um, and they were a team a few years ago. They were doing all the tank rage, you know, trading away a bunch of players to pick up a bunch of draft picks. And it was a, it was a strategy, right? And their, their whole plan was to tank, build up picks, trade away their best players, and then build up a nice, deep, talented, young roster, and then have a lottery salary cap to make some moves. And last year, things turned around. They won 10 games. They looked on the rise. But the problem with Miami is they couldn't help themselves. They couldn't be consistent. So what did they do early in the season? Tua has a few injuries. He's linked to some struggles. All the conversations about Deshaun Watson come up, right? They can't, Miami can't stick to the plan. You know, general manager, Chris Greer, you know, I think a lot of blame falls on him. You know, just they, he's, he's the guy in charge of that. While Flores is trying to, who's Brian Flores, who's their head coach, while he's trying to develop a culture, you know, of, of whatever he wants in that locker room. It's very similar to the Patriots, I believe, with accountability, you know, and doing your job and all that kind of stuff, you know, Chris Greer can't help himself, right? He, he can't help himself and stick to the plan. He's got to link himself to Deshaun Watson. He's got to think of a, a big move that, you know, he can make to maybe turn the season around. Look, Miami's had a rough season. Obviously, they've lost, I think, seven games in a row now. They are falling apart fast, you know, but you have to stick to the plan to a certain point. You know, they won 10 games last year. This was a team that was a dumpster fire a few years ago. They've turned it around last year. They've had some injuries. They've underperformed. But look, if you believe in your plan and you believe in what you've done the last couple of years, stick with it. 
Don't bail. Trade everything you tanked for. Trade all the picks. Trade Tua just to get Deshaun Watson, a guy who you hope can cure the remedies. You know, it's just it's an unnecessary pivot. And then, like I said before, these kind of pivots lead to waste, and they never work out for franchises. And that's, I think, a hallmark of bad leadership, bad front office, is your when a team starts to buzzsaw down players for draft picks. I think that's a hallmark of bad leadership and bad culture. Miami cutting Minka Fitzpatrick, uh, cutting uh, Laramie Tunsil, cutting these guys and sending them away for as many draft picks as they could get. And it it's just not a it it's not a great game plan. Jacksonville did this. They sent away Leonard Fournette. Uh, I believe another guy they sent off, Dante Fowler. Uh, they had another good linebacker that they sent off as well. Miles uh, Jack, I think. Uh, Miles Jack, they sent off um, all kinds of players that they just said, okay, we're just going to you know, cut down every solid player we have and try to get draft picks and develop a, a young roster. Another team who's notorious for this, uh, the Texans. They sent away uh, Dwayne, uh, is his last name, Brown, the tackle. Sent away Dwayne Brown. Sent away DeAndre Hopkins. Craziest thing that you could possibly do. Uh, Just they're cutting this team. Jack Easterby and uh, Bill O'Brien, they were literally trading away all pros for like sixth-round draft picks, like no one's business. Uh, Another team who was doing this, the last one I can think of, is... The Raiders did this, and they have been successful, but still, if I was the Las Vegas Raiders, I would hope that I still had Khalil Mack, and I would hope that I still had Amari Cooper. Those are two guys that they sent off that there was no way if I am a GM of a team, I'm letting those guys go. Bonafide all pros, like edging on possible Hall of Famers. Khalil Mack was an instant game changer at the Bears. Amari Cooper instant game changer at the Cowboys and it's just crazy they have never been able to replace those guys really and I think that if they would have those guys they would be easily one of the top teams in the AFC yeah and and the thing with roster moves it's sometimes you're going to make good ones you're going to make bad ones but you know we're going to keep hitting the nail on this head because I think it's really really important is to be consistent and stick to your plan Right. Houston's entire plan was to build a team around Deshaun Watson. They drafted Deshaun Watson. He turns into a pretty good player. Like, we're going to build a team around him. We got DeAndre Hopkins. We got Dwayne Brown. You know, we're going to we're going to build a a really good roster around him. And they didn't do it. They started shipping off guys. They traded Hopkins because they wouldn't give him a big deal. They, uh, you know, they got rid of Dwayne Brown, like you said. And that just, you know, your whole plan, your whole strategy was to build a roster ready for uh Watson and then two years later you didn't like the guys that you built around him so you got rid of them you just blew up your entire strategy you know and and I think that's the part that really frustrates me with some of these GMs is is they don't have the patience and the discipline to stick with it you know obviously there's a chance it doesn't work out and you lose your job and I understand that happens and they're trying to avoid that but you're uh, you have a much higher likelihood uh, of success if you stick to your plan you know Jimmy Johnson said it best one time says look if you stick to a plan and get out of the way, 20 out of the 32 NFL teams will find a way to screw it up. 
And I used to kind of think that was kind of strange. But when I watch what some of these GMs do with all their pivots and their changes year to year and, and how they always have to, you know, coaching turnover, player turnover, different strategy changes, you know, uh, Hall of Famer Jimmy Johnson is on to something there. I, th I think so many teams and you brought up, you know, a couple of really great examples. I've hit on a few of them already. They just can't get out of their own way and they keep, you know, just doing dumb stuff in the front office. You know, and, and all these culture shifts and strategy shifts, it just it just creates a bad environment. And that's why half the NFL always seems to be struggling and uh, not being in, uh, competitive and not being in the hunt. My last two examples I want to touch on because they're very similar are the Cleveland Browns comparatively to the Los Angeles Rams. I think they're two very similar teams and there's two big differences. The two big differences are Kevin Stefanski and Andrew Barry. First, Les Snead and Sean McVay. Good front office, good coaching, bad front office, bad coaching with the Browns. Uh, the Browns, a team where if you go through a list, there's probably like at least out of the 22 starters, 10, 11 superstars on that team. Same with the Rams. Out of 22 starters, easy 10, 11 superstars on that team. Both teams should be hard-charging front runners of their division the browns are almost like battling for last place in the afc north while the rams are division leaders trying to make a super bowl run why is that because consistent coaching turnover from bad front office moves bad plays by the general manager and the ownership of the team and just like we said no consistency the rams they had a plan they stuck to it. They were consistent. They said, hey, we're in win-now mode. We're going to trade away the bank, but we're going to get the best players and make a playoff Super Bowl run. And they have not backed off of that. Their most recent move, trading for Von Miller, they said, hey, whatever it takes, we are going to win a Super Bowl. And they have been pretty successful because of this. They keep retooling the team with free agents and bringing guys in trading away future draft picks, and if you want to stick to free agency and go with the assured thing rather than trusting yourself in the draft, that's fine, but like we said, you just have to stick to it. And I think these are like two clear-cut examples of similar strategies that are wildly different results. Well, they appear similar, but there's a big contrast there with Cleveland. So LA, you, you touched on it. They're all about the trades, bringing in the veterans and the free agents and, and paying them to build a really... Uh, top heavy team Cleveland for a few years there right they were about accumulating draft picks and they got a lot of draft picks a lot of young team but then they switched it up right they brought in Jarvis Landry they made big moves for Odell Beckham right they brought in Clowney Jadavion Clowney at defensive end this offseason you know so for they they kind of try to do a, a dual pronged approach and that just doesn't work it wasn't very successful Baker Mayfield is a young quarterback he can't manage Jarvis Landry and Odell Beckham's uh, attitudes and egos. Exactly. Right? You know, when you bring in a combination of young, uh, young players and try and grow them and develop them, but pair that with seasoned uh, veterans who have had a lot of success in the NFL, it's not going to work very well. Cleveland was heading down the young develop path. LA built their team with uh, free agents and, and veterans. And, and, you know, the, uh, and LA had a lot of success. Cleveland got a little worried that things were going slow. So they pivoted to veterans, but the problem is they, they, they pivoted and they kind of didn't stick to their plan and it didn't work out very well. Mixing and matching doesn't work too often. Not at all. Look, the Rams are a great example. They drafted Jared Goff. 
right? But they decided, hey, look, we went with this guy. We thought Goff would become a seasoned veteran. We thought we'd kind of walk into him being a seasoned veteran. Turns out he's not a good veteran. Let's get rid of him. We'll trade more picks. We'll get our veteran and we'll get Stafford, right? They, they, you know, they kind of kept sticking to their plan and keep reiterating their strategy of bringing in senior veteran guys, maybe hoping some of their young guys become that kind of player. But if they don't, we'll get them out of here and we'll bring a, a, a star player in or, or at least a, an experienced player in who can handle that environment. It's very, very interesting because because we always think of these GMs and coaches as as understanding so much about the players they have in the environment. But evidence shows they do not. They, they lack the patience and the discipline to to really be successful. And I think that goes to show, like we said, good front office versus bad front office. If you have a coach and they're always worried about what their job is, if it's in in question, whether they're going to get fired or not, they're not going to stick to their plan. They're not going to execute when teams feel confident and they know that they're going to be able to implement their plan no matter the results and they have time, it's a little bit easier for them to come out. And that that all goes back to the front office. But I think that was good. Do you have any um last words on uh, culture and front office, Nick? No, I, th- I think that was good. That's a good talk. I, I, I think it's one of those things where a lot of fans and, and you know, you, you, you see it, you see the news and you kind of wonder why the heck this happens at the NFL, why some teams are successful and some teams stay out of the news. And sometimes it's as simple as having just consistency and continuity, uh, you know, in the front office in terms of strategy and uh, decision-making, you know, not pivoting all the time, just being consistent and, and focused on a certain message can go a long way uh, in the national football league and college football. And frankly, in other facts of life too. That was a, it's an interesting talk. Great talk, Miles. That was uh, that was one of our best uh, deep dives. I think that was pretty uh, pretty enlightening. Big brain show as always. Always, always. Uh, now to go on to the biggest of big brain parts of our show, we're gonna tell you who's going to win this weekend. If you don't believe us, let us give you a little bit of our stats. Currently in the pick category, I am. 44 and 30 and nick is 46 and 28 that's some pretty decent picking records uh i would say we're we're a little above average as far as guessing who is or isn't going to win i think we're downright spectacular i think we're uh we're 1927 yankees right now we're on a we're on an unstoppable roll of of picking uh nfl games so People you know, might I'm, even I'm very, I'm very, I'm very humble and modest. Though. I'm a very humble and modest guy. So. Oh yeah, but people might even think we're cheating at this point because you know we're like way over 500, like getting close to like 75% picks, 60, 60% picks. You're like, gosh, this has to go. They can't, they can't keep going. But we are going to keep going, and we're going to keep making our picks, and they're going to be good ones. So stick around. We are about to get into our matchups of the week. Uh, Nick, would you like to pick one to start us off? Yeah, I'll start with uh, San Francisco and uh, San Francisco 49ers and Arizona Cardinals. You know, this is a very interesting matchup for a number of reasons. Arizona coming off that heartbreaking loss at home to a shorthanded Green Bay Packer team. Um, big takeaway from that game outside of the loss, obviously, is the uh, injury to the ankles of Kyler Murray. He is going to play, but it's definitely going to affect his mobility. That's going to be play a big factor in this game. You've got Nick Bosa. You've got uh, Jadavion Kinlaw, uh, the defensive tackle. Uh, you've got a, a bunch of other guys in that front seven. Uh, Malcolm Warner at middle linebacker for San Francisco. Uh, a hobbled Kyler Murray makes their job a lot easier. 
But I think the big point in this game is going to come down to Arizona's bad rush defense. They're ranked second to last, number 31 out of 32, in yards per carry given up. We saw that come back to the bottom against Green Bay. Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon ran the ball down Arizona's throat last Thursday night, a big reason why they lost that game. What is the San Francisco 49ers known for? It's running the football and play action off of that. Strong O-line. Strong O-line. My man Trent Williams at left tackle back last week. He's playing again this Sunday. He's going to take control of that game, right? He's going to go one-on-one against Chandler Jones, and I like that matchup, especially with J.J. Watt. Uh, The Cardinals hurt, and he's not going to play in this game, and I don't think he's going to play the rest of the year. I think this is a big, big matchup nightmare for Arizona. I think Elijah Mitchell, running back for San Francisco, is going to have a big day. I think Garoppolo is going to play action off of that and hit uh, Debo Samuel for some big completions. And there's another threat coming out that's got to scare some people in the NFC West. George Kittle returned to practice on Wednesday. You know, he's listed as questionable, but a lot of people think he's going to play this weekend. And if he returns, watch out. The San Francisco offense just got a lot, lot better. They're coming off a big win against Chicago. I think they're carrying that momentum uh, into beating an Arizona team that feels like they let one slip away against Green Bay. So I'm, I'm picking San Francisco to, uh, to beat Arizona this weekend. Do you, uh, do you disagree or do you have a, a different opinion on the game? Um, I would have to see. Uh, is Arizona's coach going to be around this week now? I believe he is. Yeah. He, he's, yeah he's good to go back. now. Yeah, he, he's um, got through all the protocols. I think it'll be tough for the 49ers to pull it off. I like the sentiment, and I think the ideas that you have going. Uh, I'd be more comfortable if Mostert was around to run the ball. I think it's going to be a really, really close game, but I would tend to want to stick with Arizona in this one, but I could, I could definitely be wrong in that aspect. I just think offensively they can maybe stick to the passing game against the 49ers and maybe that works uh to their ability uh Richard Sherman's obviously uh not there anymore so for the 49ers uh I don't think they necessarily have uh two strong corners but they have pretty good safety play um that's a tough game to pick but I'm going to have to stick with the the Cardinals here bounce back game a uh, really close game, though. It could go either way. Well, it's a division game, so these games are always close and competitive. And and I just think uh, seeing how San Francisco played against Chicago last week, dropping 33 on a on a good defense in Chicago, um, I I think will uh, will we'll, they they impress me a lot. I think we'll see we'll see that momentum carry forward uh, with them beating Arizona on Sunday. Uh, do you want to give us your thoughts on uh, our second game of the week? Yes, our second game of the week this week is the Chargers versus the Eagles. The Eagles coming off of a monster, monster victory. Uh, They scored almost, I believe, 40, 44 points in the game. Uh, They absolutely just crushed them. Uh, The Chargers, uh, were they coming off of a bye last week? No, they they lost lost last week. They lost last week. Another heartbreaker. Uh, Herbert had another interception. His play has kind of dropped off a little bit. Um, but this is the battle of two new coaches. Uh, I believe the Eagles coach gave a gardening reference when referring to the team, saying that they have to manure the fields and get everything prepped so that the new growth can pop up. Uh, and the, the growth showed last week, 
But I think that the lightning might strike for the Los Angeles Chargers. I think they are down two games this year, two tough losses. Uh, I, Herbert is a talented player. I really like him. I like the team as a whole. I like the defensive keys they have on that side of the ball. Derwin James, Joey Bosa. Um, I can't foresee them losing another game. I think they have to bounce back at some point. Yeah, I agree with a lot of what you said. You know, Herbert's up to six picks, I think, this year. He's getting up there, six picks in seven games. He's obviously uber-talented, but the turnover is starting to be a problem. Interestingly enough, I think where Herbert has really struggled this year is when he's played more complex defenses. I look at their last two losses. They played Baltimore, a very complex, confusing defense to play against. They played New England last week, a very complex, confusing defense. They give you multiple looks. They take away a lot of the things you try and do very well offensively. Where Herbert has had a lot of success, even when he's playing talented defenses, is when they just line up and play, right? Even though he lost to Dallas, they moved the ball up and down the field against Dallas. He dropped 47 on the Cleveland Browns defense. It's actually pretty good. They're not a great defense, but they're pretty good. And he dropped 30 against the Kansas City Chiefs defense. That is bad, but it's very simple, very easy for him to manage and control and understand what's going on. Philly plays a very simple defense. They've got some disruptors in the front four in uh, Fletcher Cox and Hargraves in the defensive line, but they play very simple. They play straight up. And I think Herbert can take advantage of that very easily. And I think he's going to have a big game. Uh, you brought up Derwin James. I think Derwin James, pair that with Bosa, Joey Bosa, defensive end. I think they are kind of the counterpoint to uh, the mobile quarterback situation that Jalen Hurts brings from the Philadelphia Eagles. I think what James can do and what uh, Bosa can do at the defensive line, James at the safety, will uh, constrain that offense a little bit, maybe force them to settle some field goals in the red zone. Philly's going to score points. They're playing really well offensively, but I think the Chargers are going to score more. I think this is a shootout. I think it's a fun game, but I think Herbert has a little bit of a bounce back game against a uh, against an Eagles defense that gave up 41 to Dallas and 42 to Kansas City. You know, they give up a lot of points to good offenses. I think the Chargers still have a lot of firepower to be a good offense. I think the Chargers are going to score a lot of points, and, and I think they're going to beat Philadelphia this weekend. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, and like I said, I've seen it by sample. I've seen Derwin James shut down Lamar Jackson by keying on him in the playoffs a few times. Uh, it, in for a young, young mobile quarterback, a young team who hasn't faced that, they can. The first time they play you, it can really, really surprise you. And I think uh, Philly may be surprised by the key and the talented play of a player like Derwin James. Uh, they've never seen the likes of before. Uh, Nick. What is your game to watch this week? So this is an interesting one. I don't think it's going to be a fun game to watch, but I think it's going to be a good one. And I'm thinking the uh, Chicago Bears, Pittsburgh Steelers. Steelers are a slight favorite coming into this one. They came off a, I'll call it a big win against Cleveland. Cleveland really lost that game more than Pittsburgh won it. I think Pittsburgh has all kinds of issues. They only scored 15 points. That defense, while they're pretty good, that Pittsburgh defense is pretty good. Cleveland moved the ball up and down the field. And I think they're playing a Chicago Bears team that is getting better and better on offense. Against, uh, against San Francisco last week, Justin, Field had, Justin Fields had his best day as a pro. Completed 18 of 27 with a touchdown. Ran for 100 yards and a score. They scored 22 points against San Francisco and really could have scored a lot more. I, I think Justin Fields took some really big strides last week. I think he continues to do so 
against Pittsburgh this week. And look, this is a Pittsburgh defense that they've had some good games, but they've had some bad games this year too. They've been very inconsistent. Derek Carr had a big game against them, you know, so they've, they've given up some big plays on defense. And I think the big counterpoint against them, against their pass rushers, looking at guys like TJ Watt is a mobile quarterback. And that's what Justin Fields brings to the table. Now, I think the other corollary is that where the Bears defense has struggled is that they've given up a lot of running yards to a mobile quarterback. Garoppolo had a big day against them, for example. Well, guess what? Ben Roethlisberger isn't mobile. They can't do anything with Roethlisberger except throw in the pocket. They can hand the ball off, but the Bears are really, really good at stopping the run. They're a top 15 run defense in those situations. They're really, really stout. Most of the runs they give up are actually from scrambling quarterbacks. So I think the Bears defense does a number on Roethlisberger, and I think Fields continues to improve. So I'm picking the Bears to win this game. Oh, yeah. I've got the Bears, mainly because I know all about the Pittsburgh Steelers and who they aren't. They aren't the guy. And as long as Ben is behind the wheel of that offense, they're not a threat. Like you said, he is not mobile. He is probably as mobile as a giant 300-year sequoia tree, uh, firmly planted roots in the ground. He is not going anywhere. And if he rolls out of the pocket, there's a chance that somehow he gets hit and his body absolutely falls apart and he can't play anymore. So uh, I think uh, the likes of Khalil Mack and that Bears front seven may have a little bit of a field day on Ben Roethlisberger, and that's going to allow them to not win. Uh, My game to watch this week is one that is shrouded in controversy currently. It is the Las Vegas Raiders versus the New York Giants. Uh, The Raiders just had big news come out about their first-round draft pick, Henry Ruggs, uh, involved in a DUI that resulted in the death of a young woman. He was reportedly driving like over 165 miles an hour, had blood alcohol content, twice the legal limit. Um, he, to say the least, will not be playing in this game and is no longer a part of the team. And I think a lot of the Raiders' success this year has been not necessarily the use of rugs, but I think that it has been uh, the Ruggs' ability and his potential to take the top off of a defense. Everyone has had to pay attention to that. That has allowed Darren Waller to run wild. That has allowed players like Brian Edwards and Hunter Renfro to take up easy passes in the middle because the safeties, they can't key down on the middle of the field. They can't watch cover over on the on the tight end because they always have to watch for rugs to blow the top off the defense because he was liable to do that at any point in time, a true speedster, just like they like to draft. But with him out, I think the likes of the New York Jets can key on Darren Waller. They can watch the middle of the field, watch that uh, slant passing game that they like to run so much in the middle of the field. And I think all of this controversy with the Gruden, with losing of rugs, it is finally going to compound. They were able, if it was just Gruden, to keep on moving. But now with this added controversy, the added heat to the team, um, I I don't see them overcoming this game. And I liked how the New York Giants played the Kansas City Chiefs last Monday. They played them tough. Uh, but the Raiders have a little bit tougher defense. I think that the Giants can maybe pull out a win here. Yeah, I, I, I agree to a point that so much of the Raiders offense is predicated 
on the fact that rugs can beat you deep. One of the big fears in a lot of defensive coordinators' minds these days is, isn't necessarily you know, giving up long drives or, or giving up a lot of points. It's giving up a lot of big plays. And Henry Ruggs presented that threat every time he was on the field. He's obviously gone, and that threat is missing from the Raiders' offense. Like you said, it makes life harder for Darren Waller. It's going to make life harder for that running game in Josh Jacobs. They're going to be able to bring the safeties closer to the line of scrimmage to support the run. I, I think the Raiders, they showed a lot of heart, you know, battling through the Gruden controversy a few weeks ago and, and, and getting playing well and getting some big wins. I, I think at a certain point, the dam breaks. And look, I look at what the uh, one of the Raiders struggles this year, they kind of disappointed against the Chicago Bears team that's built very similar, similarly to the New York Giants, mobile quarterback, you know, a lot of zone read games, solid defense. And I think uh, the Raiders struggled and lost to the Bears. And I think that blueprint is what the Giants are going to follow this weekend. And I agree with you. I think the Giants beat the Raiders. Uh, tough season to be a Raider fan. There's no doubt about it. They've, they've had a battle through so much, but eventually you just can't overcome everything. And I think they can lose this game against the Giants uh, this weekend. And I believe Saquon actually has a chance to come back and play this week as well. It's not 100%. I think he has started practicing. Sterling Shepard is indeed back. Um, they've got, you know, great offensive weapons. Daniel Jones might be the question mark there. But uh, I, if, if, Saquon comes back and plays this week. I think that doubly assures me that they have what they need to win this game. Um, that's good. But how are you feeling, Nick? Did you have a good dinner? Is your gut full? Are you happy? Because we're gonna check it. Yeah. Are you ready for the gut check segment? Let's do it. Let's uh, let's pick these games. Let's go for it. Earlier this week, the first game, Thursday night game, Jets Colts. I had the Jets. You had the Colts. Move on to the next game on the menu we just picked. We both have the New York Giants beating the Oakland Raiders. Next up on my list, Atlanta Falcons, New Orleans Saints. Let's remember, Jameis Winston is now out for the season. Who do you got? Atlanta really disappointed me last week against Carolina. New Orleans showed a lot of heart. Without their quarterback, it's hard, but I'm picking the Saints. I absolutely agree with you. Atlanta looks a little bit dull. and. Jameis Winston went out so early. Trevor Simeon was able to lead this Saints team against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Tom Brady with a win. What's to say they can't beat a middling Atlanta Falcons? That's crazy talk. Next up. And just one quick thought. Trevor Simeon has won games as a starter in multiple places before. This isn't his first rodeo. Absolutely, yes. He's a he's a, a admirable player. Uh, Bills, Jags. Oh, this is an absolute blowout. Buffalo Bills are playing great, and they destroy Urban Meyer and the Jaguars. Bills by, like, at least 50. Browns, Bengals. This is tough. Both teams are coming off tough losses. I, I just think the firepower of Cincinnati overcomes um, uh, overcomes Cleveland, and I think Cleveland has some infighting, right? They got Odell Beckham is and his dad has complained about playing time. You know, there's the questions about Baker Mayfield and his health. I'm going Cincinnati. Uh, yeah, it's a no-brainer for me. It's a divisional game. I think Cincinnati, whatever they lost or couldn't put together against the Jets, they're coming up against a tough divisional opponent. They're going to rein it back in, practice extra hard. This is a team that they know, so I have no problem with them beating the Cleveland Browns. Next up, New England Patriots versus the Carolina Panthers. 
So you have a Patriots team that's playing really good, right? They get big win against the Chargers. They demolished Jets, the Jets the week before. And you have a Carolina Panthers team with their starting quarterback, Sam Darnold, battling the concussion. It looks like they're going to be turning to P.J. Walker, a quarterback who played in the XFL earlier. You know, great story for Walker. Glad to see him get in the NFL and get some playing time. I just think him versus Bill Belichick in that defense and Mac Jones playing better. I think you have to go Patriots here. Uh, it's almost a no-brainer for me. The the Panthers started off so hot this year, and they I think it's the Mize Rudman effect. We come to the game, we pump up the team. Darnold gets his first win. It carries on for maybe another two games, but ever since we haven't gone back to another game, they've consistently fallen off and been very, very disappointing. So I would agree with you, Patriots all the way. Next up. Your Dallas Cowboys, I believe, are at home versus the Denver Broncos. Yeah, this is interesting because Dak's health is still a question. I think he returns. Uh, Denver is, they're okay. They're right around 500, but they just traded away Vaughn Miller. Uh, You know, I'm going to go Dallas here. I think their firepower uh, overcomes Denver, but I'm curious to see how Dak comes back from this calf injury. Hopefully he can uh, recover quickly and play well. I would even take a Cooper Rush-led Dallas Cowboys over the Broncos, how they've been playing lately. It's a no-brainer for me. Dallas has all of the weapons to overcome this Broncos defense without Von Miller. Uh, Next up, my Baltimore Ravens at home after a bye against the Minnesota Vikings. This is interesting, right? Because Baltimore is coming off a bye, like you said. Baltimore is a very well-coached team, really good organization. We already hit on this. Good organizations, well-coached teams play great after the bye. I think they demolish a Minnesota team that feels like they really let one slip away last week. I'm going big Baltimore here. Being a Ravens fan, I know about our success and our historically good record after a bye week. Uh, Not in the playoffs, but a regular season bye week. Uh, Baltimore has traditionally destroyed teams after they came off a bye they come back refreshed they come back rejuvenated and i i just the the vikings were unimpressive last week they got beat by the cowboys and cooper rush so uh it's it's gonna be ugly possibly uh next up and now talking about ugly houston texans versus the miami dolphins yeah, this one is really, really ugly. I, I'm going to go Miami here. I think they've been playing a little bit better. You know, they, they've lost a few close ones, lost a few heartbreakers. You know, they hung with Buffalo a little bit. You know, I believe in Tua a little more than I believe in Davis Mills, quarterback for Houston right now. But this is the game to not watch this weekend. Yeah, and it might even be so much so that it's such a bad game that uh, potentially – it becomes a good game because it's like two bad offenses, two bad defensive play, and then it's they match up well. But here's my here's my point. Houston has given away the heart and soul of their team. He came in and took over Mark Ingram. He was there for a season, but he's the heart and soul of any team. And losing a player like that, you see what it did for the New Orleans Saints. They were able to go beat the Buccaneers last week, even without their starting quarterback. I don't see the Texans have any life. They're going to be a dead fish out there, and Dolphins love dead fish, so they're just going to gobble them up and swim off. Uh, yeah, 
And I think there's one other hidden storyline I'm interested to talk about is obviously Deshaun Watson, who's not playing for Houston, has been linked to Miami. I think Tua is going to have a little extra motivation in this one just to just to show the Dolphins against Houston who the best quarterback is between the two. Oh, yeah. he. I think he might want to stick it to Houston a little bit. Not so much so that team, but more so stick it to Watson. Show yeah. him, listen, you're not going to take my job. So. Yes. Uh, next up, we both picked the Chargers to overcome the Eagles, uh, Derwin James to shut down Jalen Hurts. Uh, now, an interesting, interesting game coming up. The Aaron rodgers list Green Bay Packers versus the Kansas City Chiefs. So this is really a, a bet of Jordan Love versus Patrick Mahomes, which is kind of weird to say that it's even a bet. Normally all the money would be on Mahomes. But Mahomes has played really, really bad, and he's playing against a pretty good defense, at least recently, of Green Bay. Jordan Love's never played. We have no idea if he's any good or not, but he's also playing against a really, really terrible defense in Kansas City. I'm I'm picking Kansas City here, but I'm picking it more as a challenge to Mahomes and say, look, you guys should kill a, a Packers team without Aaron Rodgers. Prove us wrong and say that you're not falling apart at the seams. I'm going Kansas City, and I'm challenging them to come up and have a big game. One thing that we have neglect to mention, the Packers have brought in the boat, Blake Bortles. Uh, he has come into the Packers organization, so Jordan Love is not their only option. Uh, I think what better team to start against as a young quarterback? You can get some easy bombs on Daniel Sorensen. Uh, I, I still have confidence in the Packers. I think... Jair Alexander is going to come back. I think Devontae Adams and all those guys who were out the week before will be back. I think it'll be close because if Rodgers was in, it's a no-brainer. Green Bay by a million. But I think that Green Bay will be able to pull this game off. Uh, There's no telling uh, what's going to happen with Rodgers out, and it really depends on who they roll with at the quarterback position. But not knowing that information at this point in the week I'm still going to stick with Green Bay because I still think that they have an option. Wow, that's a bold pick. I like it. I have picked the Arizona Cardinals. You have picked the San Francisco 49ers. A tough, tough divisional game. Another game that was looking very promising until Derrick Henry has been declared out for the season are the Los Angeles Rams at home versus the Tennessee Titans. Yeah, this one's really tough. Obviously, the loss of Derrick Henry. And, you know, we talked about it earlier in the week. Uh, the Titans bring in Adrian Peterson, but he's not going to make a big impact right away. It's going to be an adjustment for that Tennessee Titans ov- offense without Henry. They're obviously not going to be as good. They may adjust a little bit later in the season, but the game after they lose Derrick Henry, they have to go against one of the best teams in the NFL, uh, the Los Angeles Rams. I just don't think it's a fair matchup. That Tennessee Titans defense is streaky at best. I think they give up a lot of yards, a lot of big plays to the Rams, and I'm I'm picking the Rams big here over Tennessee. Oh, yeah, and I'm saying a bold prediction of at least four, five sacks by the L.A. Rams defense. The addition of Von Miller, they have great, great, great pass rush up front with Aaron Donald. They have great corner in the back in Jalen Ramsey. Uh, I I don't think that uh, Ryan Tannehill is going to be able to beat this team with his arm, and I don't even know if Adrian Peterson has legs. 
So I think that it's going to be a huge, huge win by the Los Angeles Rams. And finally, we have both selected the Chicago Bears to beat the Pittsburgh Steelers. And that concludes the games of this week. But I would like to point out, Nick, we have one, two, three games this week that we both went away from each other, which I think is a record so far. So this could be a a big one in boosting our records up this week. Yeah, you know what they say, middle of the season, you know, the good the good teams kind of separate themselves a little bit. So we'll we'll see. We'll see who uh separates themselves from between you and I this week. It's going to be a fun week and uh it's going to be a great great slate of games uh coming up this weekend. Uh I think those are all the games we have. I think that's all we have on slate for today. Uh, Nick, is there any last words that you want to say? I think today was a great show. Yeah, great show. Big thanks to everyone who stuck around and listened to us. Uh, please uh, like, subscribe, comment uh, on our YouTube channel. Uh, search Saturday Morning Inspection on YouTube. Uh, you can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify Podcasts. Saturday Morning Inspection is what you search. Uh, if you're looking for some funny uh, posts or tweets, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at SMI Football Show. You know, as always, we really appreciate our listeners. We really appreciate the support you provide, helping us take on the big media sports guys with their fancy suits and their cool talking heads and all their graphics. We don't have that. We make it up for doing our research and doing a great job, putting on a great show for you guys, our listeners and supporters. You know, as always, I'm Nick Rudman. That's Andrew Mize. Thank you for sticking and listening with us. Another great show, Mize. Any uh, any last things from you? That's it. Great show. Great games this week. I'm excited to see what the NFL has in store for us to talk about next week. And we will see you then. <laughs>